A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, listener. Welcome to episode 254 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and even Spotify, as well as right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like the sense of justice in the Jedi's life, the doctor of timelines and a Wookiee-sized Star Wars fan in his own right, our own Dr. Jim Lehane. Good morning, or afternoon. I don't know when you're listening to this. Um, so, good day, or night. Good day. This isn't working out well. We, we need a Star Wars word like aloha. <laughs> Aloha, yes. Um, greetings and goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, it's a new year. It, it, it feels like the old year. I'm still stuck doing the same things. Um, you know, I'm hoping. I'm hoping that we got a lot of good things in store. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, there have been some events out there that have happened. Uh, January fourth, we had the High Republic authors get together and do an event for everybody. We've got the launch of the High Republic. And in fact, I guess we should just jump right into it with that. I mean, if we're already talking High Republic, what are we talking about? Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we plunge into the new era of Star Wars storytelling, the High Republic. With Charles Soule's Light of the Jedi. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Intrepid hyperspace scouts expand the reach of the Republic to the farthest stars. Worlds flourish under the benevolent leadership of the Senate, and peace reigns, enforced by the wisdom and strength of the renowned order of Force users known as the Jedi. With the Jedi at the height of their power, the free citizens of the galaxy are confident in their ability to weather any storm. But even the brightest light can cast a shadow, and some storms defy any preparation. When a shocking catastrophe in hyperspace tears a ship to pieces, the flurry of shrapnel emerging from the disaster threatens an entire system. No sooner does the call for help go out than the Jedi race to the sea. The scope of the emergence, however, is enough to push even Jedi to their limit. 
As the sky breaks open and destruction rains down upon the peaceful alliance they helped to build, the Jedi must trust in the Force to see them through. In which a single mistake could cost billions of lives. Even as the Jedi battle valiantly against Calamity, something truly deadly grows beyond the boundary of the Republic. The hyperspace disaster is a far more sinister than the Jedi could ever suspect. A threat hides in the darkness, far from the light of the age, and harbors a secret that could strike fear even into a Jedi's heart. And then from there, we're going to jump right into the opening crawl. Now, this is the opening crawl for pretty much looking to be the beginning of all of the High Republic stories. And it goes... The galaxy is at peace, ruled by the glorious Republic and protected by the noble and wise Jedi Knights. As a symbol of all that is good, the Republic is about to launch Starlight Beacon into the far reaches of the Outer Rim. This new station will serve as a ray of hope for all to see. But just as a magnificent renaissance spreads throughout the Republic, so does a frightening new adversary. Now the Guardians of Peace and Justice must face a threat to themselves, the galaxy, and the Force itself. That's deep, Jim. I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that sounds like we're poised for one hell of a story. I, I'm i wondering if it's less a intro to the book, like you're saying, and more an intro to the um, entire High Republic uh, time period, which, as far as I'm aware, the High Republic leads right into the fall of the Republic, uh, which is the, the time period that we know of as the Phantom Menace and onwards. I want to say China is getting exclusive content in some of the eras, and their exclusive content for this era is set like 50 years or even closer to The Phantom Menace. Like, it's at the end hmm. of this era, which, I, I mean, for, for being an exclusive content, I guess that makes sense, because even though this story is set 200 years in the past, it's set you know, separate enough from the rest of the High Republic that it could do its own thing and probably not bounce into anything. Um, you know, full full disclosure, I have uh, A Test of Courage was also sent with me. So I was trying to figure out where these, you know, line up because I'd asked Delray um, and I asked the publishing about where, you know, is there an order to these that you have to, to read them? Do you have to go one, two, and three, and, and, you know, in that nature? And I said, no, you could, you could grab any one of these books and just kind of read from there, and they're all designed that you would enjoy the book and the story and kind of piecing it together as you go. Um, so I've been piecing it together as I've been reading the story, and I did find that that opening crawl was interesting because as we get into this story, The Light of the Jedi, I find that the villain and, and you know, the protagonist in this wasn't a huge threat necessarily to the Jedi. Um, you know, there was definitely a threat to the galaxy, but the biggest question for me was the aspect of to the force itself, because I, I felt like in this story, we don't really get anything that was a threat to the force. So I'm like, okay, now if this is something that's going to the whole era, and if that's something that's going to be applied later to these, you know, this threat, um, you know, that that's intriguing because as of right now, I'm kind of I'm questioning as to why I put that sentence in there, because I feel like it's kind of like a, a lead you down the wrong path kind of thing or it's a promise of more to come. So that's kind of exciting. Uh, I would definitely say like um, 
what you're saying about the order of things, and it seems like all of these starting stories are overlapping each other and that they're all taking place at the exact same time and just giving you different perspectives. Because even the comic series, which starts on this uh, on the 6th, which is Wednesday after we're recording this, um, takes place, I believe, also overlapping both of these books, which overlap each other. Right. I, I mean, in fact, I, I had to figure out... I think it was like two, three chapters into a test of courage before I really placed where it was at because of the, the destination for that story's plot being basically a dedication in this book. Um, and once those events lined up, I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. Now I know where we're at, but they were talking about characters and events from this story that I knew their fate. So it was interesting because you know, like everything with star Wars books, like the more you read, the more insight you have. So I was finding getting, more out of a test of courage after reading the light of the Jedi. But at the same time, had I not, there are other aspects that go into it when we get into the spoiler part, because I don't want to spoil anything, but there are certain lines that are used in the light of Jedi that kind of spoil things for a test of courage. And it's, it'll be interesting as the fandom embraces and digests this. And you have some fans that are going to read a test of courage first, some that are going to read this first and how their perceptions of the story will change as it goes forward. That's always something that I found interesting about our fandom because, you know, we, we come up with different insights based on how we digest the, the, the content, you know, for my son, it's the clone wars. If anything ties back to the clone wars for him, that is gold. He loves it. Um, for me, I was a big fan of the new J order. When I came into it, my littlest, it was rebels. So, you know, I mean, it's like, as we, are introduced to certain things, it becomes a core of our fandom in it. And as this era is exploding, this is going to be something new for the younger generation to absorb and come up with all these new conclusions, new ideas and new directions of the storytelling that maybe even the people telling the story haven't came up with. But what I think is really cool about this project though, is this is very similar to the new Jedi order. We've got was like six to eight authors that have collaborated together. They came out to, uh, you know, the ranch and they, they worked together to come up with the story, the plots. So this is a very organized and created plot that has, that kind of symmetry with the New Jedi Order, that as I was reading this story, I was definitely feeling vibes of that nature with the storytelling. And I that could just be because Charles Soule just does such a good job of descriptions. Uh, I felt like this book was very much introducing characters to a speed of which Alexander Freed would do it. But the way Charles Soule wrote the characters, I was invested in them immediately. Like... You know, Freed puts out so many characters, I felt like they were just names on paper. We have the same amount of characters probably added, maybe even more so with what Charles gave us. But when he gives them, he's immediately giving you things to pull you into wanting to know the characters. Um, the first two chapters especially, you know, you, you get a captain and he gives you, you know, details about the captain, her personality, her appearance, her position in, you know, the military organization that she's at. And where she's at in life because she's now retired, you know, and it's kind of like doing this Oregon Trail kind of thing where they're taking settlers to the outer rim. And I mean, I was pulled into it immediately. So by the time the first chapter gets over, I was like, oh, my God, this is intense. And there was an intensity to the story that as it progressed, I really enjoyed. And it it that is what reminded me so much of the New Jedi Order 
And I love the idea that they're going to take and have all the different authors kind of seize on that intensity of this moment of what this book kind of kicks things off with and where we go from there. But then getting back to that opening crawl and how it kind of it's nebulous and how it describes things. I feel like there's so much promise for this story as an era. Yeah, going back to one of your points you mentioned earlier about that, how uh, something in the light of the Jedi um, spoiled the um, the other book for you, uh, Test of Courage. Had you not mentioned that, I probably would never have noticed. Um, it's like typically like you're right. This book has a lot of names to it. And that was one of my critiques of this book is that there's so many names. And he, the way Charles Soule writes is that he will dedicate a chapter to a group of people or a, a, a situation. And then next chapter will be something different. And it'll bounce around that way. Eventually, he'll go back to that first group and and so on but like all almost like there's three names in this book that we've seen before and that's it mm-hmm. and so the the bouncing around of all these new names and um sometimes using the last name like master um whoever or just using their first name um bouncing around like that it makes it oftentimes difficult for me to keep straight, especially when you start a new chapter, you're like reading or like, okay, who is this? Who, whose story am I now back to? Or is this right. something new? And th- th- that was my biggest problem. And so when you throw in names that I hadn't seen before at the end of the book, I kind of gloss over them. Like I never, I when you had mentioned that, which we'll get into, I never even realized it. In general, all Star Wars publishing needs to put back is that character list. I mean, you know, we've been saying it since Alexander Freed's stories when you get just so many characters you can't keep up. Even with Charles doing a good job of putting in the character stuff, I, I really think that Star Wars as a publishing needs to put those character lists back because it's very helpful for when you have to set a book down and get back into it or when you come back around to a chapter. Because normally I'm not a fan of those one chapter story and then you jump to another one and then you jump to another one and then eventually you come back around to it. I just think that the pacing, the way Charles did it, it worked for me this time around. I was like, oh, we're back to that already. Yeah, and... um what you were saying about this being very much like the new Jedi order. I a hundred percent agree with you. It, they have the, the round table where they're plotting this out, something that they haven't done um, in Canon that we know of. Um, and anybody who's seen the sequel trilogy can agree to this, that they needed something in order. They needed something like this to have a plan of where the story was going. And we've already had announcements of what you said, the, the, the Chinese story, um, is supposedly taking place at the end of the High Republic. I hadn't heard that, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, but you also have the Acolyte, which was announced uh, as a TV show, as well as taking place at the end of the High Republic. So you have both of those things. They know where they're going with this story, which gives me much more faith in them that they're not just kind of making this up as they go, is they have these plot points that they're trying to hit along the way. Uh, which is exactly what the New Jedi Order was doing. And the New Jedi Order also had these major villains where the Nile are pretty much nothing like the Yuuzhan Vong, other than that they're a mysterious group that have these magic, we'll call them powers, that we don't quite understand at this time, mm-hmm. uh, especially at the beginning of this book. We do find out a lot more about them as we get to the end of the book. But at the beginning of the book, they are this mysterious group. We don't understand what they're doing. We don't understand how they're doing it. And even they don't understand how they're doing a lot of what they're doing. And I, I found uh, I found them 
to be extremely a fascinating group, especially as you get toward the end that everything we kind of knew about them is not actually what we knew about them. They, they, they even switch it up at the end of the book. And so I'm, I'm, I, I'm pretty excited to see where they go, especially with the villains, the heroes of this book. Uh, I didn't get enough of them. Like, I feel like the, the, the Nile, they were focused, or at least uh, Charles Sewell focused so much on the Nile, especially since we only had a limited group of Nile. We had mainly four Nile that we, um, that we focused in on. Whereas the, the, um, Jedi and all the, the protagonists, there were so many of them that there was no strong characters that we kind of wrapped around. There's maybe like four Jedi. And of those, I can name three off the top of my head that really like were the center points. But even then that got diluted out among a lot of different people. Right. There were, there, yeah, that's 100% accurate statement. I would say the main two Jedi threads would have been, uh, uh, Av- is it Avon Chris? Uh, a- and then a- Avar. Yeah, yeah, her the uh the one the, the blonde Jedi on the cover, and then uh, Bell Zeftrain or whatever his name was, which was the pad one. And I loved his and his master Loden Great Storm's relationship. Felt like a mixture between Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan, and Obi Wan and Anakin at the same time. Um, there was this great running joke of of Loden tossing Bell off of the ship and him trying to catch himself in the force and he couldn't do it. Uh, another Jedi saved him and then another Jedi saved him. And it's like, it's like, Oh, don't worry, Padawan. Like when we get back to Coruscant, I'll throw you off some more towers. We'll get you there. <laughs> and like, and it all came to a point later in the story, which when that moment happened, when it came to that moment where bell actually had to do it and, and had no one to help him, but the force, that was probably one of the most powerful moments emotionally for me while I was reading that story. And his part in that that chapter was probably the not my focus. It was more the character he was with and what his being there represented to that character. And that chapter's importance on that character's life broke me. I I mean, I there were sobbing, Jim. It was it was sad. I was bawling. I, I read it to my wife. I read it to my kids. And I was like choking up before I got to the emotional part. I'm like, <laughs> and when we get to the spoiler stuff, I will touch on this again, because I, I felt like something about the, the way that Charles would just loosely describe the characters and stuff for me to have that reaction off of a character that was very D list. I was just, I was really surprised by how pulled into that I was. Um, But I think what he did with the Jedi was kind of like what J.J. Abrams did with The Force Awakens, right? Like, he gave us a a, a glimpse into what's going to happen for all these different characters in this era by giving us all the different characters at once. It's like, because all these other books are going to be picking off and, and those characters are going to be strong characters in each of these books. They're throwaway to this story. Exactly. But in the overall thing, I, I like the way that that worked out. And, and you mentioned, you know, there are three characters that we know of. And I was surprised that there were so many because the, the three characters would be, and, and I, I don't feel like it's a major spoil. I'm only going to give you one of the names, and that's Yoda, because we all know Yoda was put out there in the publication stuff. But there are two <laughs> other members from the Jedi. I would even we say, I, I, I called out on my other podcast, Talking Tauntauns, that 
if they don't throw in, I'm going to say the names because they're really meaningless characters in this book. Um, okay. Uh, Yariel Poof. And I'm like, Yariel mm-hmm. Poof needs to be in this story because I love Yariel Poof. Um, and he totally was. I was like jumping up for joy when they had, like Ariel Poof shows up, and then the other um, Jedi. Uh, oh, his name's slipping me, but I love uh, oh Rancis. Yeah, Rancis. Um, who is uh, one of my favorite species because he's a giant snake. And there should be a fourth. I mean, Yaddle should be around somewhere. You're right. I had thought of that too. Right. So I'm just like, hmm, okay. Yaddle's around somewhere. And then potentially there's the aspect of, well, you know, Grogu's got to have parents. So if Yaddle and Yoda are not those parents, then there's definitely two more of that species. Or we find out that they're like the, the huts and they're asexual. And then which, you know, then, then it could be Yoda, Yaddle, or a third. But I digress. <laughs> I, I, it made me stop and ponder, though, because... When they first said this is going to be 200 years in the past, like I did question, like, is that going to be far enough in the past? Because, I mean, technically, Chewie could be born any time. Uh, but you also got, like, Maz Kanata that could show up. There's all these characters that, that we know have long lifespans that could be in this, where I'm like, if they threw it back farther, maybe it would give them more opportunities to tell fresher things. But I, I, I don't know. Yeah, so going back um, to the theoretical time period of this, they, they like you said, they said this was 200 years before the movies, including The Phantom Menace. And so if you add in The Phantom Menace's time, we're looking at, like, everyone's assuming this is 232 years before A New Hope. Whether that's accurate or not is anyone's guess. But knowing right. Star Wars, um, they like to play with those round numbers. Like, when they were doing... A thousand generations the Jedi have been part of the Republic. Um, they started, they estimated a generation at 25 years. And so where is the start of the um, the Jedi based on that? 25,000 years ago. Well, what is the date for the, the Dawn of the Jedi, the book series? 25,000 years ago. It's like they don't mince like time periods. It's not about <laughs> 200 years. It's like exactly what they say. They've always done it. Right. And it made me stop and question, could this story work set 200 years in the future? And you just maybe say swaps, swap out Yoda for another species or even Grogu um, and telling the same story set 200 years post Luke Skywalker and Ray and all them. Um, I, I personally think that you could easily have done something like this and, and set it in that era. And I think it would have worked. I think it would probably have been easier uh, because you would have all these elements from the Empire and the New Republican stuff that you could have drawn off of, whereas in this era they're creating new things, new technologies. Um, we're watching new twists on certain technologies, like the way the uh, the lasers work on their ships, for instance. It's It ties in with the Jedi's lightsaber. Um, there's a description of the Jedi's lightsabers as being non-lethal, which I thought was interesting that the lightsaber was exactly as lethal as the Jedi needed it. So it sounded like at this time frame, a lightsaber can be calibrated through a full spectrum down to it, you know, not actually cutting someone. I was like, oh, I mean, I guess that makes sense because even in Legends, we had, you know, those training lightsabers and stuff that would do that. But I never thought about the fact that a lightsaber itself could have a safety setting. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I don't remember that, but I guess you're right. They do. I think they've even mentioned training lightsabers in the canon at one point. Um, I don't remember exactly where, but 
Yeah, I, I can see that them having the dial down settings. It, it could also mean that it's not the lightsaber that's killing people. It's the handle, uh, the person who's using the lightsaber. And so it's the, the lightsaber itself is not lethal. The Jedi is the one who is lethal. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed, you know, seeing what's going on with the Republic in this area. Chancellor So doing her great works. Um, Starlight Beacon being an, an outpost out on the edge of the galaxy. Now, if you're paying attention, you're excited for this. You're like, okay, where's this going to go? And that's also what made me think about this being set, you know, in the future might have worked really well because, like, we know that there's not going to be a string of these star bases out there bringing the Republic to the outer rim because they're mm-hmm. not around in the Empire. So, but if this was set 200 years in the future, that kind of a question would still be open. Like, oh, dude, this could be something that they could actually pull off. But it, it, it did immediately make me wish for more of these type of stories set post the rise of Skywalker. I would actually like to see somebody find out what Chancellor So was trying to do and kind of bring back that idea. Um, because that has always been a constant in all of Star Wars storytelling, whether it's Legends or back when it was just the EU, you know, or even Disney canon, is that the Outer Rim is very rustic, you know, and that civilization hasn't been brought to the Outer Rim. Um, and, and I like that idea. And I mean, even with Star Trek, you know, I mean, Deep Space Nine is one of my favorite Star Trek shows, and it dealt with a space station that didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so the way that this one's described was really cool because it's like half of it's Republic and then the other half is a Jedi temple. And even that Jedi temple has its own spaceship attached to it for Jedi. Me like that. The premise of that idea is awesome. And I, I I'm I'm bummed that I know what's going to happen to the station because I'm like, Oh man, that's, that's very similar to what they did with the Chunthor in legends where they had a Jedi uh, temple that basically traveled around the galaxy, squashing beefs and finding Jedi. And I'm like, I've been looking forward to something like that for a long time. So to have this kind of promise that in a sense, I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. But then knowing that we're not going to get there kind of bumps me out at the same time. Yeah, like what you're saying, it's not really a spoiler as we know that there's these beacons are as they're no longer out there and no longer being used. Um, doesn't mean that they're not still out there. And it, the interesting about, thing about the Starlight Beacon, to get a little minor spoilery in the story, is it's on the cover of the book. It's on the cover of the comic, majorly on the cover of the comic, kind of in the background on the cover of the, the Light of the Jedi. It's not even much in this book. Um, it, it's kind of like a background place. Right. It's mostly to kind of let you know where some Jedi's fates are at. Yeah. Because um, Mally was a Jedi on the council, and she had to retire from her position on the council to be the person that's going to head up Starlight Beacon. Like I thought that was kind of interesting the way that that progressed for her character. I was like, oh, you can't you can't be on the council and be in charge of this. Interesting. Yeah, but we also there's hints that we have seen or are going to see this again in the normal regular timeline. Um, the current Marvel series is called. Um, the the arc of the uh, the the Star Wars Marvel series is called Operation Starlight, which indicates that they may be going to find this particular beacon. And I've also seen rumors. I don't think it's been um, confirmed, but the in um, the the rise of Kylo Ren when the um, when uh, Plagueis is kind of playing farmer 
or a gardener or whatever he's playing, it's in the Starlight Beacon. So it's uh, theoretical that will th- this place keeps coming back. Um, so it's it's still there theoretically. I'm sure we'll find out more specifically in the Marvel series because I'm I'm 95 percent. That's what they're doing with this, calling it Operation Starlight and having oh um having like a Doctor Afra potentially cross over with the series. That's cool. Well, and I, you know, one of the things I also loved about Legends was Centerpoint Station. Yeah. Um, and the mystery about it and, and how the Carillion system was designed mm-hmm. and all that. And the new Jedi Order went back to that. And I, I'm down with them having a couple of these show up and maybe even being derelicts or just parts of some. That's kind of cool, man. I didn't know about the Do- Dr. Afra part. That's, ah, that's exciting. Well, I, I don't know for certain, but Dr. Afra, the time period is overlapping with the Star Wars series. So I would say what better than to have a archaeologist go to an ancient station or ancient as right. in 200 years. 200 years is not ancient, but yet it's like in this in this universe, it seems like, oh, that's ancient High Republic stuff. I'm like, no, that's like the founding of the U.S. <laughs> like it's not that well, long ago. <laughs> what's funny is I think the Star Wars universe is more like today's society where they're used to TikTok time. It's like 15 seconds, 30 seconds, that's it. Whereas Facebook, it's like you get 10-minute videos, 15-minute videos, and longer and stuff. And it's like, no, no, attention span is much closer. Didn't you see how old Obi-Wan got in 20 years? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything goes faster here. <laughs> yeah, poor Obi-Wan. Um, but I'd uh, kind of bring up another point that I, I was thinking of um, when we were talking about the timeline of this uh, book and this whole series in general. I I was thinking how difficult it is to place a story in context in the story because they can't say in the story, oh, this is 200 years before that Death Star blows up. That's It's like you can't. There's no way you right. can reference the future in the story. And there's very, very, very little of this and older eras mentioned in canon. I mean, everything that we know is mostly from Legends. But, I mean, outside of that, it's like a name drop here of a Darth this or a Darth that or even the Dark Legends story. You know, they're name dropping of things, but not so much events. I think there there were a couple in this. They did mention the Sith at a couple points, and I wrote down that in my notes. Uh, But outside of that, there wasn't much else. But I did get excited. I want to say it was Great Storm talking to Bell. Yeah, that's a, they. I definitely made note in my review of the vague hand waving of ancient Sith wars that are kind of long gone now. As you don't get any sort of time frame, and so the only way that they can do it is either to say out of context, this book takes place this time frame, which is kind of what we got with them saying two hundred years to give the readers an idea of when it is, or just like at the beginning of the book, like. 200 years before the Death Star explodes over Yavin. This, and they clearly didn't give us that. So Right. And then there was that one Jedi who had taken uh, red crystals from an old ancient Sith's lightsaber and purged them and made them yes. white. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they pulled the Ahsoka thing. <laughs> yeah. Wrapping up the spoiler-free part, I would say it was a very good book. It's a great intro as a series. I felt that even though there was a lot of things coming at you really fast, I felt like it was very accessible. Um, the, the way that, that 
Charles writes the chapters almost at times felt like I was reading many little books in and of themselves, but then it came back around. It was almost like watching the Mandalorian. It was like everything was used. By the time we got to the finale here, I felt like it all came back around. <laughs> I appreciated that. I would say that it's very Vector Prime-ish. You get a lot thrown at you and it's a lot to take in. By the end of the book, I was... Um, pretty good with keeping track of who's who but like i said that first it's broken up into three parts that first part is like it's kind of uh confusing as to what's going on and he also charles writes in rather short sentences it's kind of choppy at times and i equated this to similar to how chuck wendig wrote in the aftermath trilogy which a lot of people didn't like but what happens when you write in shorter sentences is it makes you read the book faster because you're not getting bogged down in the sentences. You're you're quickly getting through the sentences. And so for a high-paced story, it's a high-paced writing style. And so that you kind of read the book faster for a faster pace. And it, it, they tie together very well. And this is what you need in this. You want a um, high, fast-paced story and a fast-paced writing style to kind of go together. And one thing that this book gives us that we have been begging from new canon since it started was a major event where in Legends, that's all we had, <laughs> um, at least at the start. Like every book, every series was a major event and people are like, why do we need all these major events? Well, since canon got rebooted, we haven't had any except for maybe the Aftermath trilogy with the Battle of Jakku. What have we had? Everything's been character pieces, and uh, those are great um, depending on what they are, but it's this is a completely different type of story. This is what a lot of people have been asking for, and they're giving it to you. They have a major, uh, major event happening in the book and how that event is going to impact the Star Wars galaxy as a whole. And I see this, like I said, running into the Phantom Menace, and I could see um, how Palpatine kind of ties into some of these events um, especially since they kind of said that the Acolyte is about Darksiders, I could see them kind of taking the Nile and evolving it into where Palpatine's coming from. That was something I was thinking of too, because like we get to the end and there, there was surprisingly a twist Um, and it was an exciting twist. And they mentioned someone has been going by a different title, we'll say. And, they don't give us anything beyond that. So it's like, that's it's wide open that that could be the aspect that there is a legitimate threat to the galaxy and the force itself, as well as the Jedi, because that character who we find out that their title isn't their title. We also find out that there is a long family history with Jedi in a negative light. And I was like, what? You can't give this to me here. And no, like the, the, when it came to an end, I was like, no, 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 no. I got it no more. And I, I, ah. uh, I didn't put that together till you just said it right now. Right. Right. And, and yeah, that's kind of where I'm at too. I'm like, okay, uh, they're definitely building more with this. And I, I think what's going to be rough is the fact that you're going to have the comics, you're going to have these kids' books, you're going to have these junior kids' books, the young adult books. All these different books are going to have parts of the story, and this story is going to be a good one that you're going to want to get it all, and it's going to feel like Mission Damn Impossible. Because on the downside of what they did with the New Jedi Order, that was the big complaint from a lot of fans, was how big 
it grew and that feeling of I've got to read this before I get to that. So knowing that the publishers have taken that in mind and they're designing everything to be read in a way that you could read it by itself and enjoy it, that's smart. But at the same time, and, and we'll get into it more in the spoiler section here in a moment, there are some throwaway lines in Light of the Jedi that definitely impact the next book that spoil things. So it's like you have a give and a take here (laughs) and it's really hard to not have some pros and cons be outweighed with little cons because, you know, you you can do these type of things, but you run that risk of telling too many details of another story's plot. Um, Yeah. And, and with the bad guys being something that evolves. And like you said at the beginning of this, the galaxy doesn't really know much about the Nile. We know more about the Nile than they do. And so it's, it's, it's weird because like the galaxy could think, yeah, yeah, the Nile's probably a threat to the force itself, but we know that's not necessarily the case, but we also know other details about people inside that organization. It's like, Oh, maybe that could grow into something more. Um, There is a lot of potential here, and I think that that also is one reason why I am very favorable of this book and really excited for the storytelling. I went into it kind of like, okay, we'll see where they go, Um, but also knowing that when it comes to Star Wars storytelling, these far-flung eras tend to be some of the better Star Wars stories. Um, You know, you go to uh, Legacy and, and Legends, you go to the Old Republic era knights of the old republic the comic and stuff um you know all the old sith stuff like I, that's always been kind of like a no-brainer win so jumping back into the republic and getting to a time frame where the jedi are expanding farther than they ever have been and stuff i mean there's even uh tie-in stuff with luke and uh santeca where they're talking about this era in the republic and when the jedi were out farther from the core than ever before um and luke was finding some relics of that and that also adds depth to later stories because now if you want to have an old Jedi temple on some outflung world, well, now's your prime prime time to slip one in. You know, oh, yeah, well, remember that one on Belkadan? Yeah, it was mentioned here in this comic. Okay, perfect. So I'm, I'm excited. Um, I'm really looking forward to where this goes. Uh, I'm done on spoiler stuff. Jim, I'm going to kick it over to you, my man. Yeah, I'd say the last thing is that um, you had mentioned that this gets you super hyped to see where it goes from here. I think one of the problems that we may have is that all of these first set of stories are all overlapping. They're not going to be pushing that narrative forward. Um, We're just going to be seeing different points of view and different uh, settings within this same time period as this book. And so we're not going to get new answers until I don't know when. I think um, even Claudia Gray's book, which comes out in February, uh, which is the – into the dark, I think that is also overlapping with the light of the Jedi. And so we'll have to see. Um, they, they haven't announced very much so far besides these, uh, the light of the light of the Jedi, um, test of courage and into the dark, but they have also announced the rising storm, which comes out in July, which may be our next step forwards. So we may have to wait till then. Right. Yeah, and I mean, there's even a bunch still that are untitled out there. Uh, one untitled New Republic or High Republic young adult novel, one untitled High Republic junior novel. Uh, we've got an uns- uh, untitled short story coming in Insider 201. And in fact, that's something, too, that Insider is now putting out uh, new fiction, and they started with the High Republic era. 
Um, oh, did I haven't actually read it. I have 199, which uh, is what the story comes in at my feet. I haven't gotten to it yet, though. Yeah, Starlight Part 1, go together. Part 2 is going to be in 200. I it, That was a tough call for me because I was like, that was one of my complaints with Insider and why I originally dumped Insider from my collection. But bringing that back, I'm like, uh, I don't know if I want to get back into that. Like, I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed the fiction, but at the same time, a lot of that fiction ended up being put into the paperbacks. Yeah. But granted, right now with canon, I'm not collecting paperbacks. I'm only collecting the hardcovers. So I, I, uh. I've got to do more thinking on that. But yeah, there's there's quite a bit of stuff out there that that's still not titled. There's another young reader coming out. Um, but the great Jedi rescue, that's one that they've mentioned that has me intrigued. Cause like, I don't know enough about that one. And just the title alone had me going, it's where's that set. That's a children's book. It's like 26 pages. Right. Um, and so it's not, yeah, that's a Disney Lucasfilm it, press contains stickers. It, yes. It contains stickers, which is always a high point on anything that I collect. I will, I will go out of my way for stickers. Um, the interesting thing, uh, that I that I noticed about some of these books, a lot of them are written by Kevin Scott. And if anybody knows Kevin Scott's work in Star Wars, it's usually the children's. Uh, he did the Star Wars Adventure series and a lot of like children's books. He's writing the mm. adult novel that comes out, the Rising Storm that comes out in July. Oh, nice! And well, that's it. Cool. Yeah, I've never seen him uh, write an adult novel, and um, I, I'm greatly interested on how he d- does that. He likes to tie in a lot of his own stuff. Um, the hyper, the, oh, I can't remember the hyperspace, uh, series, the ones that originally came out in England and then they eventually, uh, published them here. Oh yeah. Yeah. That he referenced all the time in the Star Wars adventures. Uh, he, uh, he likes to reference his own work and kind of get, um, get it out there. And so I'm interested to see what, where this novel, how this novel, uh, takes into uh, that into account. And, when the, and I just looked it up. The great Jedi rescue. This is literally, like chapter three and four kind of thing of this book. Um, this is the, the, the emergence as it's happening on the planet in the, uh, Hetzal prime. So that's okay. Yeah. You're right. It's going to be a while before we get any new answers. I think into the dark is probably the one I'm looking forward to the most. Cause I feel like that's going to give us the most answers next to this book itself. Um, you know, it, it feels like it's going to be more, uh, Nile kind of, they're going to be the, the the main antagonists. We're going to probably get more of their point of view, which is one of the things I absolutely loved about this book. It's also by Claudia Gray, who hasn't gone wrong yet in Star Wars. So mm-hmm. we've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate in our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. Well, Jim, as we said in the uh, spoiler-free part, it's a book we've enjoyed. What I, I think I really got a kick out of the most, though, was how it just came out hitting hard. I mean, that first chapter, I was all in on the whole wagon train thing, and then all of a sudden, there's something in the way, and... This book made me stop and kind of reassess everything I knew about hyperspace travel. In fact, when we're watching uh, The Mandalorian's final episode, The Rescue, and Slave One's following the Lambda-class shuttle in the hyperspace corridor, I'm like, I don't think that that can happen. 
I, I'm pretty sure that this book has told yeah. me that that can't happen. <laughs> but uh, it, it's definitely interesting because at the heart of what's going on with the Nile is a different form of hyperspace travel, one that goes against the laws of what we think we know of hyperspace travel. And as that progresses, we find out most of this like three-fourths of the way into the book, right? So at this mm-hmm. point, in, in, in chapter one, all of a sudden there's something in the way and the captain's trying to get around it and she swerves around it and, oh God, they all die. And you're like, what? Then you go to the next chapter and you're at the Hatzel or Hetzel or whatever uh, that system is called and you're at an observation post where they're kind of like tracking ships coming in and out of the system and then all of a sudden, Boop, there's a blip, four blips, five blips, 12 blips, 20 blips, 40 blips. What the hell's going on? They send out an alert. They get in their ship because they're going to tell everybody more details once they fly out. But boom, they get taken out. You're like, holy crap, like what's going on? And that sense, like we were talking about in the spoiler free part about how this almost felt like the new Jedi order. You immediately like start questioning, is this an attack? Are they being invaded? And even when the New Republic, I keep saying New Republic, even when the Republic starts to analyze what's going on, these are questions that the senators are asking, the chancellor is asking, like they want to know too. And I like the way that the reader isn't stuck in their point of view. Like we get answers, even though they're not getting answers, I'm getting the answers that I desperately want. And that is keeping me connected to the story. Other times I've read stories like this where they hold those answers and I just, I get sick of waiting. It really kind of drags the book down and slows it down. But like you said, with with Charles' writing style, it was very fast-paced. I was zipping through it and I was enjoying these little tossaways. And yet by the time it's all said and done, nothing was thrown away. It all came back and I was like, holy crap. I was so floored by the way that the beginning tied to the end that I did not see that coming. And I was just like, this is so cool. Yeah, it definitely does a like it's it's kind of a tease as to what's going on. But, you know, what's going on, like these things are shooting out of hyperspace, going at uh, going at near light speed. What could it be? But we've already seen literally in chapter one, chapter one that was released, what, six months ago? Like we right. we've known this accident happened. Um, if you've read that that preview, you knew this accident happened a long time ago. I read chapter one, and then they released like the first eight chapters of the book, which is a little ridiculous. Uh, but I I only read chapter one till I got the book, and you knew what was going on, but you still weren't a hundred percent sure. And I was kind of like, is this tie like the the things that are flying out of hyperspace is this the ship you're pretty sure it's the ship uh that they've given you all the evidence that it's the ship but you're not 100 percent sure that maybe they're just not throwing something else in there until like eventually um one of the big things is the jedi feel people in these pieces of the ship that are flying towards the planet and that's when you realize like yeah 100 percent, this is the ship and so that's um like I, I liked how he kind of set up this mystery, but it's a mystery you're pretty sure you know the answer to already. It makes you feel smarter reading the book right. <laughs> than probably you are. <laughs> well, and, and he layered it, too, because we find out that, yes, it was the Nile that had caused the crash in the aspect of one of their ships was cutting across this hyperspace lane, and it happened to be at just the right time for an intersection. And for most of the book... That's just a casual circumstantial accident. It was, yeah, it was an 
accident that this ship was in the hyperspace lane. It just it was a coincidence that it happened at the same time because you what you had mentioned before is that these ships were going across hyperspace lanes. They were making their own lanes essentially. Uh, kind of like like if you were to drive down the highway and suddenly turn right across that field and you'd just be going where you needed to go and voiding trees and stuff. That's kind of how they traveled through hyperspace is they made their own paths. Right. And even that had its own mystery that was layered to it. You know, we, we find out that the Nile travel on paths and they get – you know, the paths from the eye of the tempest or the eye of the storm or whatever the heck his name. He was the eye of the nil, uh, which was a great and fascinating character. Marshawn Rowe, his dad was the eye before him. And when his dad died, he inherited the role and all the secrets that came with it, which we find out is this basically this lady that's in a, a, a stasis chamber, basically really old from the Santeca family. And the way that the Santeca family tied in and how they were like, uh, you know, the the Lewis and Clark (laughs) of hyperspace travel families. And once we found out, you know, they brought some of the family members in and they started telling them information about it. And they're like, you know, they don't tell the Republic, but they know about somebody that knows ways to travel in different ways. Turns out it's a relative of the family that Rose family has had locked in stasis and has convinced to give them these paths. And so she's able to, I, I gathered that she was using the force in a sense to chart these paths in her mind that only computers could do because she was able to, with her ability, calculate where all the legacy run fragments were going to come out of hyperspace as emergence that uh, Kevin Tarr ended up, and he was one of the guys from the, the planet, he rigged all these navigation systems and stuff together, like thousands and thousands of them, to let them run a, a hypothetical program to create that same algorithm to find that out, which was an interesting thing in and of itself because like I, I wanted to see how that looked. Like I'm like looking forward to seeing that in comic form. Which, you know, we were talking about how so many characters came out. Being able to look at the comics and the the concept art and stuff and see what the characters looked like was very helpful because there were so many thrown out and you didn't know who was, you know, supposed to be a main character. Because like Kevin Tarr, when he's first introduced, he seems like he's gonna be a nobody but in a lot of ways, he's like the super, he's like the Ghent of legends, you know, like this guy's able to put a bunch of feeds together in a way that for the first time, people all across the galaxy can see a system's worth of feeds in real time. And he was able to hack things together in ways that helped not just the Republic, but helped them, you know, understand the problem that was happening. Um, and I love the way that that played out and the political aspect of what was going on with the emergence and what the Republic was trying to do. And when you have them shut down hyperspace lanes because they don't know if hyperspace travel is safe or not, like it, it very much felt like COVID-19. It's like we don't know what's what to do. We're Everybody's on quarantine. We're locking stuff down till we can figure <laughs> out what's going on. I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Like I definitely had that. I, I had that feeling, too. And I'm like, oh, my God, they're 2020-ing us. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I had the same feeling when I was reading The New Jedi Order, too, because there was a lot of the talks of, you know, how much freedom are you willing to sacrifice for safety? And, you know, when the Vong showed up, there was that question of, you know, you know, how much are we going to, you know, let them tell us what we can and can't do? And 
So I, I love seeing that kind of mirror out in a sense. And the way that they did it was very organic. Yeah, like like you were saying, the um the engineer there, I think he did a spectacular job indicating where the status of technology was during this time period by the fact that they're like, we can predict where these pieces are going to be coming out of hyperspace, but I need what was like a hundred thousand essentially astromech droids um hooked together to run the calculations and he's like burning them out left and right uh, because the calculations are stressing out the systems. And it really gives you uh, a feeling of where they are because think about that during, especially the prequel era. Like I would imagine that would like R2 could have figured that out like all by himself where like you need a thousand of these like proto astromechs to, to do it. And, like, I have a, a background in um, chaos theory. I, I studied chaos theory as part of my dissertation. And so I kind of understand, like, in order to understand chaos theory, um, it's like weather patterns. In order to get your weather patterns more accurate by one day, it, ha- it involves, like, a hundredfold um, technology advance to understand what's happening going on. And so that's similar to what's going on here is that in order to get your knowledge advanced by just a little bit, you need a lot more information and calculations in order to do it. Mm -hmm. It was interesting too. Like he was talking about the ray array in his mind. It's like set up on a moon and they're trying to cool things down. And it's like, he knows that it's going to start cascading. He's like, that's the one thing about the array. It eats navigation droids. Like, Oh shoot. He is not going to end well for him. (laughs) (laughs) There were so many little tiny details in this story that made me think of other things like, uh, Chris's, introduction right there's a moment where they're talking about her focusing and she ties her hair into a mandala which helps her focus which i locked into that because there was originally going to be a nami songwriter book named that and i was like everything about this character kind of had that nami sunrider feel to her like she had the ability to to sense the bonds between Jedi and strengthen them. It was very similar to what Jason Solo was able to do with the force melds in the new Jedi order era and the way that she would interpret the force. It was a song to her. Um, uh, one of her best friends, the, the way he saw it was an ocean. Uh, there were just so many really cool perspectives of Jedi that when we did get to see them and we got to go into their mind for a moment, I really got a kick out of that. And I mean, there was what was that one Jedi's name? There was a guy that was hooked up with Loden and Bell. Um, oh, the old, the older Jedi. Um, Porter. His name was his last name was Porter, but I can't think of. Oh, uh, no, his first name was Engel Porter, and he was like three thousand years old or seven thousand years old, whatever it was. And and they talked about how he had lived all these different lives uh, because, like, you know, he was when he was younger, he was a warrior. Then he became a, a meditator. He basically had served every kind of role the Jedi had ever had, kind of a sense. And there's a moment later where he sits down and he's meditating. And they talk about it like he's drawing on his old life of being the the Jedi warrior and he's bringing the warrior to the forefront and he's even not thrilled that he has to do this. And I'm like, I just 
those little tidbits and stuff in an era where the Jedi are at their height of their power was just my candy and gravy, man. I was lapping that up like nobody's business. <laughs> yeah, the um, I, I liked Porter Angle, and I think like uh, of the the four Jedi I had me- I had um, mentioned before, like you had Loden Great Storm and his Padawan Bell Zedifar. They were definitely like the main characters of this uh, the Jedi side. You also had Avar Chris and her f- friend. <laughs> I'll put that in quotes of Elzar Man, um, right. and he I think I found the most fascinating because I think he has the most potential mm-hmm. to give us some unique force things because he was one of those theoretical theoretical force visions uh, that he likes to think of uh, what 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 are other things in the force that we could be doing but we don't know how to do it or we lost the ability and that's that's what he wants to do is just to, to find new things or old things that are now new and I think that uh, he would be a, he, he's going to be a major player um, coming forward and his relationship with Avar I think is playing off of the no attachments, but I really like you. <laughs> right, right. Him and, and even uh skier with Mally had kind of a, a, a deep friendship where they hinted on that because in the second chapter, those two throwaway characters, I say throwaway loosely. Uh, one of them was reading Jedi romance stories and I was like, what they have Jedi romance stories. Like were they cautionary tales or was this like run of the mill? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The, the, it's, it's like, um, Romeo and Juliet, where they all die in the end. It's like, see what happens? See what happens if you get into romance? (laughs) Right. Right. I I loved the Chancellor's motto that we are all the Republic and like how that was kind of like the center theme of what's going on in this era. I mean, even mockingly when the Nile do it, the Republic, like, oh, damn, y'all. Yeah. it was also a great setup in those first few chapters too, when they were talking about how most of the systems had little planetary defense weapons to utilize because the Republic was enjoying peace for so long that everybody felt that the money was better spent in other ways. So here you were and all you could do was watch these, you know, rock and ship parts come flying towards the systems and wipe things up because they're coming in at near light speed. And I thought what was interesting, too, was how quick the Jedi response happened. You know, I mean, when the Jedi all showed up and they're all working together in tandem and stuff, and Jedi are getting wiped out while this is happening. Like, you know, some of them mm-hmm. are focusing so hard on the task at hand that they start flying into each other. There's what's called a, a, a drift, which is similar to the Jedi force meld that, that uh, Jason and Luke and them were using in the New Jedi Order, except for they would use their ships in a way that Luke and them would use the stealth X's where they would use the force to navigate. They would use the force as their uh, radar and all this. And, and so when they were in the drift, they were kind of like a bunch of swallows back in the day that get in those big cloud formations and move around, which was really cool. But later, and even during this, this first event, Sometimes it would backfire. Things would happen like, you know, an emergence would jump out real quick and right on top and they have no time to navigate and bam, they're gone. Um, And the way the Jedi would feel that in the force 
and how it would affect things and the way that Chris's character, you know, she's sitting on the bridge and she's focused on the song, you know, is what she's calling it. And she could feel as the Jedi are wiping out that the song is getting weaker. And then there's a moment where Jedi from around the galaxy reach out all the way from Coruscant to even Yoda out traveling with a bunch of his younglings that she feels their presence in it. And, and, um, man actually helps by kind of removing himself from what's going on. And he fuels his view of the force, which was of the ocean and it being endless and, and roiling and all its power. And he pushes that into the meld. And that's kind of like what really gives them what they need in the end to stop the most critical part. Because while they're doing all of this saving of the lives on the ships, the lives on the planets, they discover that there's something in the back of Chris's mind that's kind of niggling her. And she looks off in the corner and there's a corner space where everything's dark. And she's like, what's out there? She has somebody kind of scan and they find one pod. It's a massive pod, but it's a certain type of fuel and it's drifting for one of the suns in the system. And it's a certain type of sun that if this fuel hits that chemical makeup of the sun, it will cause the sun to go Nova in such a way that everything in that system is going to get wiped out. So everything they've done is for nothing. They, if they can't stop this, they're, they're doomed. And so as they're reaching out, they, they almost get it and they just, not quite get there and then yet they finally they end up getting it with that bump that man gives them and i just i thought it was a really cool way of keeping the suspense going because they kept talking about impact and as you're reading the chapters you're like oh my god the impact's about to happen but wait it didn't happen what's the impact and they're like well if it hits the sun the whole planet goes over and you're like oh my god that's the impact Well, that's a, the, the, the great way. Like I said, this book was broken into three parts. All of part one is counting down. Like every chapter gives you a uh, time to impact. And it's one of those, like, you don't know what's going on. Time to what impact? Like you're assuming, like, maybe the entire ship's going to hit the planet or something like that. And you're right. Like as soon as you find out what that impact is, it's like you're – I assumed that it would uh, hit. Because, like, what, time to impact. Like, we already know something's going to impact. I was right. actually more surprised that they stopped it than that they, that, that of what it was. Yeah, in, in fact, I think it was around that time. It might be in part two when we first meet the Nile and their introduction while these emergences are going on. And I, I first I thought, okay, it's another emergence. And they talk about the storm opening up in space. And inside the storm, you see ships, hundreds of ships. And when that description happened, I was like, oh, my God, it's an invasion. It's an invasion. I started freaking out because I was like, no way would they do something that big like they did with the Nutrient Order with having an invasion happening from outside the galaxy. And at that moment, you know, the way that they leave things so vague, I rode that cloud for a while before we finally actually figure out what is going on. And, and that cloud is basically the way the paths look. Um, the paths are so different than natural hyperspace that it, it gives this illusion to the Nile that they're magis- uh, you know, magical, that they're able to literally jump in and out of places and, and, and show up in locations and stuff that shouldn't be possible. Um, so I, I like the way that played out. And as we learn about them and their, their location called No Space which was cool. It's kind of like a world between worlds kind of thing. Um, and they're based there. And you find out that the Nile ride the storm is what they call it. 
and they have what's called Tempest Riders, which are the three main factions, and each of those Tempest Riders or runners or whatever, yeah, I think they're runners, the Tempest Runners have their own faction, and they're basically the leaders of the Nile. It's and a pyramid scheme. It's it, basically how it's set up. Yes. And we don't find out like how bad it is until we start getting into Rosehead. And, and that's when things really got interesting with their organizational structure. Because you find out he really doesn't have much power at all. That if the runners were to find out that he's getting the pass from the lady in the, the stasis pod, they could just kill him and they could rule it all. Um, and so... The way he uses his knowledge and the way he turns everything around by the end of the story and really kind of creates a bigger bad out of the organization through the events of the story was brilliant. I mean, for me, that was the twist at the end. And what we find out more with his character at the very last few pages just made it even more sweet. But to watch how this accident launches this and it forces the Nile to evolve right through the story before our eyes into what they become. And then you find out that last twist, my brain just melted. And I'm like, I I keep, I want to keep talking about this twist in spoiler free aspects as it's one of the very last things of the story. And I, and we will touch on it, but I want to kind of keep it vague right now. So it's like that, added so much to what was going on but even without that twist the the evolution of this organization was awesome because you know the runners had storms that had their own groups which were clouds and you know it it was very much a pyramid scheme as you said and one of those schemes as it was going on was a kidnapping of these prominent people on another planet and the way that that story played out as it went along with everything else, I think that that it felt like a, a throwaway story at first. And I kept questioning why we were coming back to that plot on the homesteaders um, and why we kept going back to that family. But by the time it all plays out, that little scene felt very necessary for so many plot threads all the way through this story that that's the chapter that really got to me. Like I really started to see it and then I felt it and the way it hit me was just hardcore, man. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to dial it back before we get back to get, get to there at the end of the book. Uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the, the paths the, these new hyperspace travels. And I found it interesting is that they talked about the colors of hyperspace. Well, we know like when you go into hyperspace, it's kind of this blue um, modeled pattern that they're kind of sitting in. But didn't they mention that their, their hyperspace paths were red or something that the, those special things that they went through. Right. Yeah. There was, there was some descriptions like, cause I immediately was thinking like the pathfinder, uh, that, that Sidious and Palp or Vader had. Exactly. That's kind of what I was going with. Cause if you remember in the rise of Skywalker, the hyperspace lanes were red and they, they went out of their way to talk about it in the novelizations and stuff of that. I read it that it's because you're going through this weird aspect of hyperspace. And it, I think that's what these paths are. It's very similar to what, everyone had the take to get to Exegol in the Rise of Skywalker. You know, that actually makes the Exegol scene in that path make a hell of a lot more sense because when I watched that, the one of the big questions I always had is like, well, if he's flying into a nebula just to come out on the other side, why not fly around the nebula? But if it was never a nebula, if it was actually a wormhole 
in a sense, and that's basically what these paths are. That's exactly what he was taking. Um, and and even the Nile had uh, what were they called? Path engines on their ships and stuff. Uh, yeah, they're was... the special hyperspace uh, jumpers or something. Right, which might as well have been a Pathfinder. I mean, because it had to be plugged into the navigation system. So that could have easily been the intended consequence of writing it that way. <laughs> that, yeah, that what I think. Retcon. I don't know. Yeah, what I think the Pathfinders are were really just computer systems so that um, Marsha and Roe can control where the ships go and kind of feed them. I don't think they were actual engines. I think they were more of just being able to dial in what the, the coordinates for the hyperspace were. Um, and it really takes into effect towards the end of the book in the third part when Marshawn um, starts to kind of take over everything. Where you're right, we, we are led to believe at the beginning or the middle of the story, um, because you're right, the, 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 the Nile don't come into it until part two. We're introduced in the, the, the interlude between parts one and part two of them. And we're led to believe he is kind of an ineffective leader who was only there to provide guidance to these groups and that if they were these um his uh his three lieutenants if you will if they were to able to get to um the Senteca woman that he is keeping hidden on his ship if they were able to figure out that it was her they could essentially take over and he would be worthless and we are led to believe that at the beginning and towards the end it no longer looks that way. <laughs> like he, he's been playing them like fiddles. Yeah. There, you know, one of the things I was mentioning before was the dialogue between Loden and bell. Um, and during the first, you know, the great Jedi rescue in a sense, when they're going down onto the planets and they're helping people load up because when the Jedi show up, they don't really know what's going on. They're just there to help and save lives and, and serve the light. Um, but there's a great moment where, you know, they see this big, uh, you know, basically a mansion on the hill kind of thing. And it's got its own ship and there's these gates up around it and they get there and the guards won't let anyone in. And Loden has this great scene and, and he's doing this dialogue back and forth, but we see it through Bell's eyes as the guards like, it's not my job to let them aboard Jedi. It's my job to make sure they don't. And Loden's like, perhaps you should consider an early retirement then. As always, there was a smile in his voice, but Bell recognized the meaning of this particular flavor of smile. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) and I, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. I I thought that Bell was going to be the focal point for these two. Like, I enjoyed their interactions, but I think it's like more right in this moment now that I'm realizing that Loden is going to play a bigger role in the overall story because of his his plot throughout this. Mm-hmm. Um, Before you go forward, uh, speaking of that, Bell is specifically called out as being in the um, the the book coming up by Kevin Scott. Uh, he in the uh, in the what's it called in the Rising synopsis. Storm? Yeah, the synopsis for the Rising Storm. He is one of the three Jedi mentioned. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, I, I definitely feel like Loden was going to be one of those characters like some of the others that would just there to die. Uh, you know? <laughs> like, no. But by the time we get to the end, I'm like, oh, 
oh crap, they've got a lot more in store in store for this character. Um, I, I never, I mean, like it, it happens so quick in the story that I didn't stop and think about the ramifications of what all that meant for him. I thought more about the ramifications of what it meant for his captor. I was like, oh my God, this guy's, this person's a lot more evil than I ever thought. Um, so yeah, I, I, the dialogue between those two though, I think added to my love for both of them because you know, you had so many Jedi, like you said at the beginning, it was hard to really kind of pinpoint who were going to be main characters of the story, but I definitely felt like their interactions all the way through this felt like they were meant to be one of the core characters for the Jedi component of this story. Whereas you have other Jedi like like uh, Skier, the uh, the Trandoshan Jedi, where I felt like he was specifically there to set up where he's going to be in the comics. Um, the Wookiee Jedi and his master were set up specifically to be where they're going to be in their little kid story. You know, I didn't yeah, I... get that sense from Loden and Bell, but I guess... That's because they're being set up to tell their st- spot in the next adult story, and we're in an adult story, so it just kind of felt like it was natural in that regard. <laughs> yeah, the Wookiee the Wookie Jedi has the same problem with every Wookiee in writing ever, um, is that you have to translate the Wookiee. And so instead of translating the Wookiee, more often than not, we don't get a Wookiee. <laughs> and that's it. It's easy. He was there to be translated. They even mentioned that um, almost everyone in the story couldn't understand him. <laughs> right. And honestly, like, I think the best character that they ever treated in that regards, you know, Wookiees are something that exists in your universe. So it's something that you would run into and have this problem. Why wouldn't you have a Lobaka MTD scenario? They should all have a damn translator droid attached to them. Or, you know, I mean, like even Star Trek came up with the universal translator where everybody has one and that was how you could understand them. But the fact that we don't see more droid personal translators for species that know they're going to run into other species and have no way to talk to them seems kind of like a really... Missed opportunity, I guess. <laughs> the only way you can get around that is by saying, like, um, it's a cultural thing where the Wookiees would hate to be translated by droids or something, something to that effect. Like, um, if you don't understand them, you're, you're, it, it's your own fault. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed some of the different techniques we saw. Um, Chris uses her lightsaber as an instrument to tune the force. That was badass when that happened. I was like, no way. Um, the different... There, there's ships that use the lightsabers. You you couldn't fire the weapons without the, the lightsaber being injected into the ship or something. Yeah, yeah. And the way that the dash lit up. Like, I had a moment where I was thinking about the technology of that because they, they described the displays and the fonts and everything lighting up the color of the blade. And I was like, now is that something you program into the lights or is that something like a fiber optic cable? (laughs) (laughs) It's a fiber optic force. Right. Uh, I thought that was cool. And then like, you know, they were mentioning the other ships and stuff. And I almost, I almost was sad because it's a great opportunity to bring in the Chunther. I've talked about it before. It's a very, yeah, it's a very obscure thing of legends. Um, it was brought in during the courtship of Princess Leia. It was the Jedi training temple ship that crashed on Dathomir that the Night Sisters wouldn't let the Jedi get near. Uh, Yoda came and helped to negotiate because 
there was battles that went on and the Night Sisters held their own. The Jedi could not get to the ship. And in the end, Yoda negotiated a peace, letting them keep the ship and keep the Jedi off the planet. Uh, and, and that was always, you know, that's where Luke got all of his Jedi training most of the actual school lessons he got from that ship and stuff. So I always thought that, that would have been a good story to have told in the old Republic of the Chunthor. And you could have set it up like the next generation on Star Trek where the ship's just going from, you know, system to system, righting wrongs and, and right. finding Jedi and doing all this stuff. I thought it was a great opportunity for a story. And they had a similar ship and I can't remember. It's like the Aether or something like that named in this, but I was like, man, you could have easily thrown that in there and, and brought that element to life again. But it's just so obscure that I don't think anybody knew that that opportunity out there. They still could, but I, but I, I immediately jumped to that connection. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. They do have something in canon very, very similar to it, though. It's the Crucible from the Clone Wars, where you had the droid oh, yeah. um, press, Professor Huang, um, who would basically guide the, uh, the Jedi students to get their lightsabers and help them build their lightsabers at Ilum. And so that is, like, during this time period. It, it, totally, they can bring that ship into... Um, or at least a passing mention because that, like I said, that's from the Clone Wars, so it's easily one of those things that they would know about. Right. Mm, good point. Good point, sir. There was a moment when they went to Coruscant and they talked about Chancellor So and they talked about uh, Umat or Umate, the the basically it's the mountain on Coruscant, and I thought that was kind of cool. Um, they've only mentioned that a few times. Oh yeah, uh, I, I I enjoyed that. Yeah, that they brought that back from Legends too. That's the 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 only firm place uh, that you can actually touch the uh, the Earth, if you will, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word, because Earth is clearly not. Yeah, I was like, I'm like, I had it in my notes, and I'm like, what is it? It was mentioned in Darth Plagueis, and it was mentioned in the Unifying Force uh, and Duchess of Mandalore. I was like, okay, that's cool, because like Duchess of Mandalore actually showed it. Um, but at this time frame, the majority of the peak is still above the cityscape. And I like the fact that they talked about, even at this time frame in its present, that there had been other republics and other empires and other you know organizations and civilizations that have been on Coruscant, and all of them have chose to keep that space sacred, which I thought was kind of a cool little, you know, because you talk about how we don't have any events before that, but now it's like now we know there were other empires and other governments on that planet. Before the Republic, I was like, "Oh, that's that's kind of yeah." Cool. Like I'm just like it, they kept everything, the, all the names because Minari Mountains and Umate is the peak. Um, I believe that is exactly how it's referred to um, in canon. Um, if I can find it, because uh, that was all that's all the legends names. I guess Light of the Jedi hasn't been out long enough for it to come up, and I. I that's one of the problems is that we got early readers um, through NetGalley of The Light of the Jedi, and I I hate digital books. I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, I like having the book in my own hand and marking stuff. And the problem with the, the NetGalley version is I would read it on my iPad, and I'd flip pages like you would um, going side to side. But when you get to an end of the chapter, it insisted the end of the chapter be on the right side of the page. <laughs> And so when I would flip the page, if I got to the end of the chapter, it would just repeat the page I just read on the left side if, <laughs> if, it, didn't, if it didn't line up correctly. And so I'd start reading, and I'm like, that doesn't – it took me a few chapters to 
realize that it was just repeating that same page again. And so I, oh. uh, it, it drove me freaking batty. Um, that's probably uh, more you of a... think an... that's bad? The, the one for a test of courage goes up and down, and your own phone's functions won't work. You're stuck in the book for quite a while. Oh, no. <laughs> you must finish this chapter. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, this is a bad format. <laughs> yeah, that, that's personal uh, personal uh, first world problems, I guess. Uh, I got access to the book, and I'm complaining about it. <laughs> One of the things as, as it moves forward that I thought was another cool tie-in was we go to uh, uh, Iridu, which is Tarkin's home world. And at this moment, it's uh, Kasav, one of the Tempest Runners, one of the three you know that has his own little branches of the Nile. And he's going to extort the planet. He's going to tell them, you know, hey, there's there's four emergencies coming. Give me so much money and I'll stop them. Well, they don't believe him. The first one comes in and they stopped out when he's like, oh, it's a freebie. The next one comes in and, and he lets it hit the planet. He's like, all right, you yeah. have so many seconds. <laughs> well, then they screw up and they don't stop the last one and it crashes on the planet. But he's already got the money. This puts significant heat on them. Um, and I didn't think about it at the time, but the reason why they misjumped was because of their flight engine. And I didn't realize at the time that that accident was like another accident that happens at the beginning of the book. And it turns out as we end up finding out all this stuff, it's not all accidents. Someone is actually planning all these things. Someone has the ability to adjust the flight path navigation systems and i didn't i didn't put that together do you did you think i didn't put that i don't i always assumed that he was just running rogue at the time like we that's specifically said he was running rogue um i had assumed that he just made a faulty call on that jump or the navigator made a faulty call on that jump and um it was a complete accident you are did you are you kind of placing a guess that it wasn't I, an accident i am i am right now i'm thinking that that also was a machination of the eye i think that he knew kasav would do that i mean kasav was the perfect type of character stooge the, the, the three of them worked out perfect because one of them was all about uh, deception and and being a spy one of them was all about doing the job right and then his group was all about being warriors. Like they, they would take to the fight. He was very predictable. I mean, to the to the point of detriment. I mean, and now I'm thinking, you know, he chalked it off as the navigator making a mistake, but the navigator was surprised. I don't think it was a mistake. I think it was purposely done by the eye the entire time. Because that's the big twist at the end. We find out that the eye set the original ship in that location for the legacy run to hit it. The eye had been doing all these things in the background that we're slowly getting bits and information of. We knew that he had issues with Kasav, but we didn't know how far he was going to go until the very, very end. And at that point we're learning things like his name isn't even his name. Uh, his family had had history torturing Jedi. I'm like, there were so many things about Roe that come out at the end that 
change the dynamic of that character. But at this point in the story, I was already loving the character. I was rooting for the character. I didn't want to see the character get kicked out of the Nile. I wanted to see him kind of consolidate power. But then when we find out that he does do it, it was in such a Palpatine way that I was just like, oh my God. Like, did I, coming back to this, I'm I'm convinced now that this was him, mm, it, but I didn't see it at the time. It makes total uh, did, sense. Did you start to figure that out as it was going, or was his twist as shocking to you as it was to me? It was like like I said, it, he looked like a um kind of a not even like a, I guess like a figurehead um of the the group in that he kind of placed himself into an important position because he was providing information but he didn't have any control over it and the way the book is written is that he had no control over it and so you are led to believe that this is indeed the situation and no i was completely blindsided when all of a sudden he's like well it's not exactly just a figurehead where he is kind of turning things to his own benefit and um kassan's forces made I, now that you're mentioning that he was manipulated or possibly manipulated i can see it because you have this one character where they're able to identify a ship they have his name they know who they're looking for the ariadus are ariadins are um i don't know their um, planets uh um pe- people but they are hell-bent on vendetta against this guy. And we already know from Tarkin and several other books that take place on this planet that they're a warrior race, essentially, but a smart warrior race. And that they will beat you in every, whatever Hunters. manner they can. Hunters, yeah. They're, yeah. Um, and so they, you have that set up against this guy, and they know who he is. And so it's easy um, for Marshawn Rowe to kind of push him out, like uh, uh, literally like open the front door, push him outside and go, here's your person. This is what you need. Once you get rid of him, you'll be good. We're gone. Like y- y- we can kind of go back into hiding again. And it, it it worked out fantastic. And like all the, the dominoes falling into place that um, Martian Rowe has been setting up everything that's happened in this book, uh, it was, it was kind of, you're right, mind op- mind opening and like, wow, this guy really is control. And when they say that his name isn't necessarily his name, it got me wondering, it's, this could be one of two instances. Like we already knew his father um, was another row. And so, and everybody knew his father. And so either one is that this guy, you're right, they could have had Sith titles or something like that. And that like, that is their real name. Like Darth Vader is Vader's real name. Um, sort of thing of the rule of two. He could be a damn Sith Lord. Like I'm like, Ooh, Oh my God. (laughs) So that's, I hadn't even thought of that. But what I was thinking is that the Nile wear masks. Almost all of them have these masks on and very few people have seen Martian Rose without his mask, except for his three tempests. And, my thought was that maybe he is not Marshawn Rowe. Maybe Marshawn Rowe was another be. character that this guy took over for. And since nobody can see their face, maybe before he even let the Tempest see his face, he um, basically took over his place and was using that position to further his own gains, whatever those may be. Mm. That, yeah, I mean, and that, 
is definitely one of the aspects about this. Because like we were talking at the beginning, how is the Nile going to be a threat to the Jedi and the Force itself? Well, if he's one of Bane's rule of two Sith, <laughs> that checks all those boxes, dude. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. Oh, my God. I hadn't thought about that. Because the other thing he did is he also put in doubt in Lorna D's group because of the botched kidnapping. Um, he allows her group to come up with the idea of capturing some homesteaders who are part of a prominent core world family who moved out to the outer rim to strike it out on their own and to live off the land. And so their thought is, is we'll go, we'll kidnap these people and we'll hold them for ransom. And this will be like the last thing we do because we got to hide out because Kasav, he screwed us over and we got all this attention on us now. Right. So, I mean, it, it's all working out perfect. You're like, okay, yeah. And they botch it spectacularly. I mean, you know, they show up. It's a family of four, I think, maybe five. I'm pretty sure it's just four. Four, yeah. A, a brother, sister, mother, and a father. Yeah. And this is the chapter that, or the story plot that gets me. It's one chapter specifically at the end of it all that gets me the most. Well, what you were mentioning before is that this whole story plot seemed pointless. Mm-hmm. Like, it seemed like a throwaway plot that they kept coming back to. It really did. And then once you find out that it, it how well it ties in, I really appreciated it. Um, you know, they, they get to the homestead too late. Uh, the Jedi, that is. Um, so they're already gone. They're following them. And there's there's all these reasons why they can't use this ship or that ship. And they only have this animal and that, you know, thing. And this is when they're with uh, uh, Pot, uh, Potter Ingle. And his character has this great moment because his his uh, steed, basically the horse he's on, gets shot and he takes it personal. Like, <laughs> How dare you kill a man's beast? Right. <laughs> like talk about shooting a man's horse. Like that whole scene was great. Um, and so he gets cut off from the group and they continue moving forward. Then the, the Nile, you know, they're hurting at this point because the homesteaders blew up the ship. So they're already in the red on this mission. So they've got to get out with all the hostages. Well, the, the husband's smart and he causes the horses to stop cause. So they beat up the husband. The wife realizes husband's going to end up getting killed because he's already concussed. So she gets in the way, gets shot. Then they throw her off of the, the wagon they're using to slow the Jedi down. And I'm just like, oh my, you know, like, this is like hardcore. Then Loden has this great moment where he takes the gun off of one of the ships, loads his lightsaber in it, and shoots at one of the, the two actual ships that are on the ground that the Nile are going to get into and leave, blows it up. So they only have one ship left. They manage to get into that ship, and they're taken off, and they have this great comeback around moment, because as they're flying away, the Nil throw someone else out the ship, to slow them down. And this is the moment for me because it was it was just so great because there's been this running joke about Bell not being able to catch himself in the force from these large distances. And his master has literally taken him back to the temple and has thrown him off of buildings to give him more practice. And he is constantly screwed up. He hasn't been able to do it. He's beginning to think that there is no choice he's never going to be able to do this and thus he's never going to become a knight because he's just not going to be able to master this one skill and so when all this is happening Loden's like I'm going after the ship you're going to have to go after the girl and this is what got me 
Bell couldn't believe what he was seeing. A hatch on the hull of the Nile ship had opened, and a small figure had been tossed out. Just thrown, like nothing. He gasped, loading ahead of him in the pilot seat, but the vector in a deep dive. Padawan, his master said, you will save the child and I will continue on and save the others. Do not fear. I am so proud to have been your teacher. I believe in you. The Vector's cockpit opened up and the wind rushed past so loud that speech was impossible. But what more was there to say? Bell unclipped the safety harness and leapt out. Immediately, gravity took him and he fell into a spin. That didn't matter. They were kilometers above the surface of Elfora, which meant he had little time. Not much. If he was going to save the little girl, and he was sure it was a little girl, a child tossed away by the Nile like garbage, he needed to focus. I mean, again, it just gets to you that this is how evil these people are. You know, they're willing to do anything for a profit, anything for their own freedom, even if it means taking someone else's. He pushed away his awareness of Loden's vector shooting back into the sky, continuing the chase alongside Indira and her own ship. He'd forgotten about the ground, the sky, everything but the force, and searched for a tiny spot of light within it, the sense of a lost child who needed to be saved. There. Bell could barely open his eyes against the rushing wind. He wished he had a pair of goggles, but truthfully, he didn't need them, or his eyes either. He had the force. He wrapped his arms and legs tight to himself and angled his body down, feeling himself shoot forward as he became more aerodynamic. Bell reached out to the force, asking for it to push him even faster. The little girl was flailing, and that surely created some wind resistance. They would both reach terminal velocity soon enough, and then he wouldn't be able to catch her. The second or so of fall before Bell had leapt from the vector had undoubtedly given her a significant lead. But the Force answered, and perhaps the sleekness of his Jedi leathers had let him shoot forward more quickly than he otherwise might. All he knew was he was getting closer. The blithe child's terror was looming in his senses, rising, her fear overwhelming. He put it aside. And for me, I mean, this is the moment where I put together what's going on for this little girl, right? She's at home with her family these people come in they take them all hostage they beat her dad unconscious they shoot her mom and throw her off the ship they take her and her brother onto a ship and then they grab her and throw her off while they're up in the damn air like the terror that that kid is experiencing in this moment got to me right he put it aside as he approached, he reached out and used the force to pull that little girl to him. He enfolded her in his arms. She struggled. Of course she did. Who wouldn't? He pulled part of his tunic over their heads, enough to block some of the wind, and then he looked at the child. He didn't know that he'd ever seen someone so frightened. Bell pointed at the Jedi insignia on his chest. Miraculously, she calmed. She knew what he was, and she thought she was saved. Not yet, Bell thought. He pulled her close, cupping his hand over her ear and blocked the wind, and he spoke. Close your eyes, he said. I'm with you now. You're not alone. He had no idea if she had heard, but he'd done what he could to calm her. Now he had to focus. Bell glanced down, squinting against the wind. He looked for a soft spot, water maybe. Even a slow slope they might be able to roll down, anything that would ease their landing. There was nothing. Just the rough landscape of the planet, the swirls of the magnetic mountain ranges, the rust plains below. Elorfa was not a soft world. They were falling from a height a hundred times higher than anything he'd tried in training. And even then, he'd never landed successfully. 
For a moment, he hoped against hope that perhaps Porter Ingle would miraculously appear at the last minute. But the Iraqi Jedi was far away. No one was coming to save him or the girl. He had to do it all, and he had to do it alone. Bell opened himself up to the Force. He did not think about the ground. He thought about the child in his arms, of how unfair it was that these things had happened to her. He knew he had the power to save her, to let her continue living in the light. Why would the cosmic force have given him his abilities if not for this very purpose? Side note, I giggled in glee when they used the term cosmic force there. (laughs) The wind was not his enemy, nor was gravity itself. They were both part of the force, just as he was, just as the child was. If he fought them, he was fighting himself. He should not try to fight. He should try to understand. Bel Zedifar relaxed. He came to know something profound, perhaps something about the Force, perhaps something about himself, something he would try to understand more clearly later. He thought it was the reason that he had been so bad at saving himself for falls, despite his master's best efforts to teach him. Being a Jedi was not about saving oneself. It was about saving others. The roar of the wind passed Bell's ears lessening, becoming no stronger than a powerful breeze. He could hear the little blithe. She was praying or chanting. He couldn't understand the words, but it was the same short phrase over and over. The wind quieted further to silence. Bell opened his eyes. They were barely ten meters above the ground, and they were drifting downward, slow as a leaf, to land gently on the cool slate-colored ground. He could understand what the little girl was saying now. I'm not alone. He sat up, and the girl clung to him. We're okay now. What's your name? She looked at him, his eyes wide. I'm B, she said. But that's just what people call me. My big name is Balin. That's a little like mine, he said. I'm Bell. We're safe now, Balin. Everything's going to be all right. The child gave him a dubious look. The look of a kid who knew she had been told something untrue by an adult, no matter how much she wanted to believe it. Her face cracked, and she burst into tears. Bell just held her. He looked up at the sky, searching for the vectors or the Nile ship. Nothing. Not even an exhaust trail. Everything's going to be all right, he thought, and he didn't believe it either. I tell you, Jim, this is the last bit before the interlude for the council and everything. And when he heard what she was saying, the mantra of I'm not alone that he had told her and that she was repeating that the whole way down, that is what killed me as a father, dude. I That broke me so damn bad. I was sobbing for a good 15, 20 minutes about it. Just thinking about if it would have been my little kid and how awesome it is to see the Jedi being the Jedi. Like, I just, that was a moment that was so great for me. And then to have all of this, by the time the book gets over, coming back and tying in and everything being worked in such a way I mean, like that tied in to Bell. This is the moment that his master has decided you're a Jedi now. And then unfortunately, we're going to find out that Loden also has a great moment, a great huge chapter there uh, where when he goes to save the dad and he's unsuccessful, him and the dad get captured. And this is when everything with with Marshawn Rowe shifts Because while the two of them are on Rose's private ship and Loden and him are talking, Rose's like, I don't care about these settlers. I never did. And he takes Loden's lightsaber and cuts the dad in half. In that moment, I was like, 
I changed what I thought about Michonne Rowe. I, I mean, I was thinking like he was like going to be an anti-hero. He was going to be somebody I was going to be able to root for. And in the end, I realized he is not that kind of character. He is very evil. And then by the time we get to the very end and we find out all these new details about him, the level and the depth of his evil is wide open. And getting back to what we were talking about at the spoiler-free part of, you know, the threat to the Jedi, the galaxy, and the Ford itself, I have to think it has to be him and everything he is doing with the Nile. The oh, Nile themselves, definitely. I don't think, are it. I mean, it's just, I mean, that's that's what gets me about this book. This book is just so well-written. And I, and you, and even Nathan have been talking about, you know, Charles Soule's Marvel comics are some of the best written Star Wars comics right now. It was a no brainer to put this man in charge of this book. I mean, to see his talent in, in the written form of this way, as well as in the comics, I hope they put him in charge of more books. I really enjoyed the way he told the stories, the way he built the characters and the way the plot unfolded. On, uh, on Facebook, you had alluded to the point when, uh, uh, I am not alone. Um, <laughs> and I, I hadn't reached that part of the book yet. And when I finally got there and I'm like, uh, oh, I, I, you didn't, you alluded to it, but you didn't, uh, give anything away. And so when right. I got there and I'm like, oh, this is what he was talking about, but I'm apparently, um, dead inside. And, um, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, that's just a weird thing. Like, I, when I read some books, that's part of what slows me down is like, I stop and I start thinking about, you know, the, that character's perspective on things. And yeah, when, when I got to that little girl saying, I'm not alone, man, that just, it all came crashing down. I was like, you know, like as a kid, I remember watching all dogs go to heaven. Nothing, no problem whatsoever. I read the novelization for that. I was sobbing for an hour and a half. <laughs> Books hit yeah, hard. Yeah, no, yo. I'm just, I'm just dead inside. It's okay. Uh, it's a, <laughs> so, um, yeah, the uh, that that rescue that goes uh, really far south, like that entire rescue plot fails, in, like disastrously. Um, because you're right, the 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 mother gets shot, the child falls out. They do save. Theoretically, the mother is saved. Um, I don't think we ever actually saw her um, healed, yeah. but uh, Porter Angle with her to yeah, yeah. Porter Angle was transporting her to get help, and he could help her along the way. So theoretically, we're assuming she's good. The child's good. The boy got saved by Avar Chris while they were um, on the ship trying to get uh, every everyone off. And the the flying that was going on. This is I have one big problem. Um, and it's more of a technical problem than anything else is that the fact that they need to use their lightsabers to power weapons and stuff. And so they need to divert their concentration to put a lightsaber into their ship while you're in the middle of battle. Like, yeah, you're Jedi and all, but doesn't that take away from the fact that you should probably be paying attention to the battle, not trying to get your lightsaber into your ship to activate the weapons which you're going to need for the battle it's not like you turned on the ship with the lightsaber so that's i guess a a personal um issue it it just drives me mad that they would do this but i guess that's a problem with the jedi in general 
Uh, <laughs> and uh, so they they they're able. They get Avar is only able to get one out because the ships only hold two people. So she gets the little boy out, and then Loden kind of figures out a way to get himself into the ship um, uh, while breaking his leg in the process, and he is unable to get the father out getting himself captured in the process and this seems like a, a, a uh, I guess a little bit of a stretch for Marshawn Rowe's plan is that he then kills the father like you said his entire plan was to capture the Jedi he had hoped that by them kidnapping this family that they'd be able to capture a Jedi I like that seems like a bit of a stretch without more plans along the way well that's when you find out that he was the one that sent the message to the jedi in the first place i mean that when he did that i was like wait what like that was before we found out that he didn't have his name that was when the big twist started dropping and my jaw fell with it yeah but this group that can barely handle a kidnapping of four non-force sensitives are able going to be able to capture a jedi yeah, that yeah. Well, and, and that's where Lorna D was like, "Well, why'd you send my whole fleet?" I, and that just shows how far he was willing to sacrifice. Like he was willing to take the Nile down to just one tempest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I fully understand. Like that, that's kind of more of my not problem with the story, of problem with his planning, or is there? Are we missing a step? in his plans that more guaranteed, like you're right. He is the one that tipped off the Jedi to get them involved in the whole situation. And it just seems like all of that tempest would have died and he would still be out of a Jedi um, is more likely the scenario than they would actually capture the Jedi. Right. Well, and, and I think one of the, the complaints that I had about setting it 200 years in the past was you can't have the Sith in this story because if you do, their involvement has to stay secret. No one can know that they're the Sith. Now, if Michonne Rowe is that connection and he's the Sith, that makes so much about everything make more sense. Plus, that would explain why he would be able to know things that he shouldn't know. Maybe he's doing some kind of force, you know, getting visions or he's, he's you know, seeking out the future. Um you know, I, I think that there's definitely more there, but if that's how they're going to tie it, and that's how they're going to make the threat to the Force, is that this is a Sith threat in all but name, that would be interesting. It would be something that I could have probably thought of as one of 25 different plot points for this era, but one that I probably wouldn't expect them to actually go with. But at the same time, I feel like either you keep the Sith completely out of everything and hidden all the way up until Maul shows up, or we find out that, you know, maybe we find out that this guy is one of those Sith and his whole history in the grand scheme of Star Wars is what he's known for with the Nile, that only the readers know that he was a Sith Lord and everything he did with the Nile was part of the Rule of Two's quest to put Palpatine in office. And I say Palpatine loosely because at this point, I'm sure Roe was thinking it was to put himself in office, but... Mm -hmm you know, Palpatine would be the end game in that sense. Um, yeah. It's similar to like the Darth Plagueis novel where Darth Plagueis himself is not known as a Sith Lord. He is known as, what was it? He was a banker, wasn't it? Right. Um, because he was yeah. a moon. Um, he wasn't, yeah, he, he was a, a, a moon to being considered a Sith. Yes. Uh, and that's uh, the M U U N moon. Immune. Immune. Um, <laughs> 
Sorry. Um, and so, but like, yeah, generally, like the Sith Lords are out there. I would have assumed that they. I, I actually, I hadn't even thought about it um, until this this moment that they would be a part of the story during this time, but as themselves. And so, yeah, I could totally see Marsha and Roe being a Sith Lord without actually like coming out with it. Cause even Palpatine never really came out as a Sith Lord to the general public. He was just the emperor. But when he did, it was expertly done in Stover's novel. He tells Windu and the other masters, right? And he records everything and then plays that recording back without the key details later. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what Roe does. He sets up Kasav, right? Sets him out there, gets him in a spot where the, the entire group gets taken out uses the path engines to make all the Niles start jumping from space to space to, to crash into ships, to wipe out Jedi, to basically suicide bomb everybody, right? The, the Republic thinks they wipe out the Nile. Okay, everything's great. Then we go back to no space, and he is telling them about what happened with Kasav and everybody. And he goes, let's see. The Eye and the Tempest Runners wore their masks, but Marchand's was new, ornate, with some suggestion of a crown, and the superstorm engraving subsumed within a circle of a glowing red and baleful gaze of a beast. Rose's clothing, too, had changed. Now he wore a heavy fur cloak, worn and ragged in spots, but the wear conveyed a sense of history, of battle survived and won, as it should. The cloak of Asgar Roe, his father, or maybe his Sith master. We don't know. Um, but Casso believed, this is him talking in, Casav believed he was taking his crews to save us all, to protect us, to keep the Republic from learning our secrets, said the Eye of the Nile. It was a trap, a lie. You see how they came for him. The Republic and the Jedi hunted down Casav's tempest like vermin murmurs through the crowd as the Nile watched ship after ship being destroyed by Republic attackers, all flying under the same banner they wore on their masks, their clothes, their bodies. But look, Marcion Rowe said, pointing at the battle raging above them. Look what Kasov and his people did. And now he plays Kasov's message when Kasov realized that Rowe had hosed them all and they were doomed. He tells him basically to, you know, this is Kasav telling his small Tempest, we're going to fight to get out of here, right? So he plays it back. Show them who we are, came Kasav's voice again. And the next phase of the battle began as the Nile began using their new and aggressive tactics, radiation bombs and waste sludge and explosive escape pods. Marchand continues, our brothers and sisters refused to fight the way the Republic wanted them to. They fought like the Nile. A roar of approval from the crowd, not enough to shake the Great Hall. There was still too much uncertainty for that, but a start. The Jedi entered the fight, and once again the tide began to turn against the Nile, as the vectors whipped through the battle space, darting and firing their cannons. Another voice echoed above the Great Hall. This time it was Marchon Rose. I am the Eye, and I will give you what you need to defeat our enemies. These are the battle paths, my friends, and with them you cannot lose. And this is... Again, part of that original recording, this is when he started taking their ships and made them start jumping. But the Nile in this room have no idea of that betrayal. I, that's classic Sith, man. 
ah, I can't believe I didn't think of that before now. This has, he has to be, right? Right? Yeah, I'm interested. We don't, we never find out his species. Um, and they kind of like allude to, he's like his gray skinned, um, I feel like I, I similar like a Trandoshan. I feel like a grayscale Trandoshan or something like that. I, I get I had in my mind, but we haven't seen him. And I was just looking up to see if we've seen anything about him. Uh, StarWars.com did publish uh, photos, um, concept art of him, but with the mask on, and even the mask that they're showing him did not match what uh, Charles Sewell had mentioned because he had mentioned kind of the eye was like a um, his. The eye, like eye of a storm, um, had a like a swirling kind of uh, aspect to it. And the picture that they're showing is just a straight, has a big red eye in the middle of it um, and like breath mask sort of thing, which all, all of them apparently had breath masks so they could knock out people on the ships. And uh, it didn't does not look like what I had anticipated based on the story. So I, I'm interested kind of to see what he actually looks like with and without the mask on. Right. And as he's doing this, he's having thoughts in his head. Uh, he goes, I am the eye, Martian Rowe, he continued. I am the nil. And so, he said, holding out his hand to his people, are all of you. This is the moment, he thought. Another step on the path. Dude, he's got a plan, man. Kassav and his people died so we could stay free. But that fight isn't over. The Republic will come for us and the Jedi. We are no longer tempests, storms, clouds, and strike. We are one thing. He lifted his arms to his head and removed his mask. He stood there, looking out at the thousands of faces. His tool, his weapon, his army. We are all the Nile, he said, using the Republic's own phrase against them. <laughs> like, oh, my God. This is great. He used the betrayal of Kassav to use Kassav as a rallying point to get them to all rally around him as the leader. And, I mean, as we find out that, you know, everything all the way back to the original ship that took out the Legacy Run, all of this was his plan... I was shocked then, but the fact that I never once until this recording thought that that might mean he is a, a hidden Sith, it, it, it just makes so much sense now. It does. And I'm really looking forward to where it goes, because if he's not, it's going to be something equally cool. But, damn, it makes sense that he is. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm on board with you now. Like like I said, I didn't think of it until you started bringing it up here. And uh, no, it makes the the more you think about it, the more it makes sense that they are setting up a uh, a, a Sith Lord plot similar to Palpatine's plots, where he has plots within plots to build himself into the the Emperor. Um, this is something similar, except for we're even seeing further back in his. Uh, in his timeline of when he is just starting to get control over his own group, which uh, eventually will theoretically lead to more control in the future. I mean, you know, random, weird, crazy, you know, canon is not canon, so we can reestablish canon as we go kind of thing. We could find out that Marshawn Rowe is Palpatine and that his dad was actually Plagueis and that this whole time he's been jumping from body to body. Like, that could still happen. That is that is the, the the biggest pipe dream ever, but I'm just putting it out <laughs> there. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I'll be lucky to find out that he's a hidden Sith. Um, there was also, like I mentioned about the drift uh, earlier, when we're in this last battle with Kasav's people um, and 
Roe initiates all the path drives. There was a great moment between Skier and Mally. Mally is supposed to be the one that's going to take over uh, Starlight Beacon Station. And he's like, you don't even need to go. Like, you're, you know, you should, you should stay behind. She's like, well, how about we just agree that nobody dies? And they're like, okay. And so they go out there and they're doing their drift. And when Marshawn starts having the ships jump, some of the bigger ships jump right into the drifts. Like the Jedi have no chance. It, it, they jumped, boom, dead. Big swaths of Jedi. I mean, imagine having a cloud of Jedi ships so thick that you throw a rock through it and you see a tunnel all the way through. Like, that was an intense moment. And Skier ends up taking a, a fragment of one of the ships in through his cockpit and it severed his left arm. That's why in the comics he doesn't have an arm. I thought that was such a cool moment. I was like, oh my God, he's washed all over again. <laughs> yeah. Except for he can grow back his limbs. Uh, and, and they specifically call out. And so I think in the comic, he's only missing his forearm. Um, and in yeah, the, this book, he, and in his book, it clearly went through his shoulder. And so he lost the entire arm. And so I thought I, even that little uh, um, tidbit is interesting because it's not one of those like this is clearly an accident. He lost his whole arm in the book. and He's only missing his forearm in the comic. No, it's showing he's growing his arm back. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Yeah. And then. We'd mentioned it in the spoiler-free part, and I said I'd come back around to it, about an aspect of this story that kind of spoils things for a test of courage. We finally get to the point where Starlight Starlight Beacon is going to be commissioned. It's going to have its uh, grand reveal opening and all that. Because in the background of this whole story, that's one of the things. Like They don't want to push the opening of the station. It's one of the Chancellor's big projects. You know, They want to uh, be able to show that the Republic is still sound and able to move forward. And so we finally get that moment, and there's just all these Jedi tossed out in the midst of all of it, right? Um, everybody but but Loden Greatstorm, because as far as the Jedi are aware, they think he died in the battle. They don't even know he's captured. I mean, that's harsh. Like, this poor bastard is going to be tortured for God only knows how long, because no one knows he's actually with them. He is the Jason Todd of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but so there's a moment in here where they're talking about all of the different uh, Jedi that show up and they're throwing names of people out um, like how the station was designed by renowned Jedi architect Paolo Hidala. If that isn't Pablo Hidalga just renamed, I don't know what is. Yeah, I um, saw that too. And I'm like, that's kind of blatant right there. <laughs> right. Um, they talk about Bell now being a, a Jedi Knight uh, or, or no, actually he's, He's still a Padawan, and he wants to be a Jedi Knight, but he thinks with his master being dead that he shouldn't be able to do it because his master needs to be there. So, like, we don't know if he's actually going to get full knighthood at this point. I thought that was kind of interesting. But they mention um, in the random list of all those other Jedi that were there, Jedi Prodigy Vernarsta Rowe, and that's not a problem. We know about her. She's going to be in A Test of Courage. She's the main character. She's going on a trip to this station. That's how we know where that book is located. Her, She's on her journey to this actual dedication with someone's daughter that she's guarding, kind of doing stuff with. Oh, but she's hold, hold on. On the cover of A Test of Courage, I'm looking at it now. And remember the ship that I mentioned with uh, Professor Huang, the droid? Yeah, yeah. The droid on the cover of this ship is the same model. Really? On the on the cover of the Test of Courage book. So whether it's the same droid or not. Well, 
that I believe is the J six droid of the girl that is bringing it. So it's probably the same model, maybe. But okay, interesting. interesting. Well, so as you mentioned on the cover of a test of courage, it shows two Jedi, but the synopsis for it talks about her. She's just newly a Jedi Knight. Okay, that's fine. She's going on a mission, and there happens to be another Jedi Master there, a Jedi Master Douglas, and his Padawan, I'm a something or other. All fine and good, okay? That's fine. But if you've read Light of the Jedi first, and you get to this part at the end of the book, we read Jedi prodigy Vernarsta Rowe and her newly acquired Padawan, Irma, just arrived from their own encounter with the Nile, which would be the other book. But if that book starts with her as a Jedi Knight and he is with his other master, then that kind of gives us some plot of that story in a sentence that we really didn't need to know that she was there with her newly acquired Padawan if that was going to be part of the plot for the other book. I'm always for a good tie-in, but this is one I question. Like, do we really need that? Is this going to ruin this for anybody? Could it? And I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here. But it's just something that it did jump to me when I got into the next book because I was trying to lock in the location of that book because it didn't have a, this is set before this book or set during the events of this book. There is none of that yet. So we're still piecing it together. And that jumped out to me where I was like, wow, what a small little throwaway line. But yet, if you're paying attention, it really gives you the guest starring so-and-so on this episode of Discovery kind of thing, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) We talked before the show about how I just started watching Discovery, um, and we mentioned a few episodes uh, back how uh, I, I was watching the original Trek. Um, I had gotten through Trek in the animated series, and I started Discovery, and they spoiled a major plot point in the Discovery series just by saying guest starring, and it's one of the major characters in the the first couple episodes. And I'm like, when you guest star, it means you're not going to be around for the whole series, that person's going to die. <laughs> and, uh, and I was certainly right. That character got killed off very quickly. Um, and to your point about this story, and like I said, uh, the character's names still, I, I don't, I don't, did not catch them. And so since I haven't started reading a uh, test of courage yet, um, it's one of those that wouldn't have spoiled it. Had you not brought it up? And harped on it for so long. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and I'm thinking, like, if you read A Test of Courage first, it's not going to be anything, because you already know about that. But but you don't know know if this wouldn't have spoiled something else in A Light of the Jedi. Right, and that's, as I'm reading A Test of Courage, that's that's one of the questions I'm going to be asking myself as I go through it. It's like, okay. Because as, as I said, when I was reading The Crawl, I kept coming back to a threat to the Jedi, the galaxy, and the Force itself. And I really, I stop and I question, in light of the Jedi, did we get that? Were the Nile that threat? And I would say, based off of just reading that story alone and not implying things and guessing at things and theorizing on things as we've done throughout this episode, I think, no, I think that the Nile were not the promised enemy that the crawl gave us and if they aren't then i hope that they evolve into that and as we've said in this episode i've already figured out some ways that that could happen in a very plausible and convincing way um what do you think though jim 
No, I 100% agree with you. I think, like, if you just go off of this story and what we were given, don't assume that this is the lead into a major um, time period. Just this story with what we were given. The Starlight Beacon is barely in it. It's mentioned a whole lot. It's mentioned as the what the Jedi are going to or where they came from. Um, and they end up there at the end of the story. Literally, it's only at the end of the story that it shows up. And it's even then, it's not that important. It is just a, it's basically like a rest stop um, that you stopped on your way to California and you got out of the car in the middle of Nevada and had to had to go to the bathroom. So you got out of the rest stop and you're like claiming this thing is the be all and end all of uh, um, anything. Actually, a better, a better thought is the wall drug. Anyone who has traveled out west along Interstate 90 has seen signs <laughs> for the wall drug because they have them for miles and hundreds of miles they have billboards for the wall drug and you get out of the wall drug and you go well i'm here because the signs told me to be <laughs> and that's about it it's 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 anybody who knows that reference will find that amusing um but uh <laughs> yeah it's like that that the the starlight beacon was barely in it the the threat to the jedi was completely non-existent in this uh besides you you and i uh, theorizing but just by itself it's not there whatsoever other than that the it's not a threat to the force like the jedi are dying but the jedi are dying because they're putting themselves in the path of these um these emergencies that are crashing so, yeah, they're going to die because they're trying to save people the same way that firefighters and cops die because they are putting themselves in danger to try to save other people. And so it's it's a similar situation, mm. um, but they are not a direct threat except for maybe at the end of the story we are getting that direct threat, but it's not part of this story. Yeah, they really have been tight-lipped. I mean, even like I said at the beginning, that one list, they're untitled. You know, they've got slots. And I think we don't even know who's writing them yet, which will probably be the next thing we'll find out. Um, But we know that there's a plan. So even though these slots are unnamed and untitled right now, we know that they know who's doing it. They know they know what the direction is. And that has got me excited about what could possibly be happening with Rose's character. You know, it's not like what happened with Snoke. And by the time we got to the third story in the in the the story arc, and we've gotten through two different writers' versions, and then we see that hey, Snoke didn't really matter to nothing, you know. Like, I think we're building up towards something, and we're going to utilize this character. And I think that this character, I mean, the fact that he takes and turns the Nile into his army, I mean, dude, this this guy is. We just touched what we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg here with this character. And I feel like if you stop and you think about that fact and you look back at everything he's done, there is a huge iceberg underneath there of evilness to this guy. I mean, especially that moment when he kills the blithe father and he just cuts him in half with the lightsaber just callously. It's like, oh, geez, Louise, that's a coldness to this guy. I'm excited, man. Um, I think uh, unless you have anything else that you want to talk about about the main stuff, we can get to our uh, our follow up questions that we normally do. Uh no, I'm uh, I'm good. All right. Uh, well, you know we we touched on the is there a threat? So let's just get into uh, 
how we would rank it. I mean, because the covers itself, we even touched on that. It had the station in the background. We've got Jedi there in their white robes and the different lightsabers. That type of stuff's been splashed all over social media for a while because the imagery was all they really had to share with us. So we don't need to touch on that. How would I rate this book? is going to be tough because I want to be intellectually honest. I don't want to give it too high of a rating undeservedly, but I really feel like this has just jumped up to one of the top five stories in all of the new canon. Um, because it's an ongoing story, I don't know if I could say it could it could be a number one, because right now my number one is still Lost Stars. Um, but it's definitely up there. I want to say... This would probably be my third favorite right now. I would say Lost Stars, Dark Disciple, and then this. Um, I, I gotta say, the fact that the Jedi are back and in full power is probably one of the aspects about this that gets me the most excited. Um, I like seeing Jedi as characters, as a, as a plot thread in general. I like finding out stuff about ancient Jedi. So if anything that we get introduced now that could come up later in Luke's era or later eras is ancient things that we found, um, tidbits about Yoda, stuff like that. Finding out that, that, that Yarrow proof might actually be more badass than I ever thought before. I, I think that's kind of cool. Um, him and uh, Rancis. I think that those uh, are really cool little Op- connections. Opo Rancis or something like that. I'd have to look him up. Uh, right. Uh, Rancisis. Bearded Snake Man. Rancisis. <laughs> yeah, Opo so yeah, Rancisis. He's just, I have he's, a hard time, Jim. I, I know. Like, I, I, he's one of those like background characters that nobody ever realized was a snake. Right? He was all coiled. Now, I have a hard time uh, ranking this, man. Like I, I want to give it a really high, strong... And, and honestly, like, aside from just the, the way it's written and the character descriptions, like, how much of this high is how much I enjoyed the story? And you know what? I'm going with that. Because I enjoyed the story that much, I'm going to give it a solid 9.5. I, I really, there wasn't much to this story that brought me down. There wasn't much of the story that brought me out and there was very little in the con department. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to give it a high 9.5. This is a really good book and I hope that when this series is over, I can look back and say that it set up one of the best eras in Star Wars storytelling. That is my hope. I feel like we are in a strong start to that hope. (laughs) All right. I must qualify my reviews. Um, I said this before. I am a very harsh critic. <laughs> and so any any uh any score I give anything is usually um in in that taste. And I had given this book an 8 out of 10, which is very high on my list, probably one of the highest ranked books I've given. And I think the nice. only major downfall is that we are inundated with so many characters that it's hard to keep track of, especially with the the format of the book bouncing back and forth between these groups and that you lose a little bit as you're going back and forth. But even then, it's still a great book. It's a fast-paced book that sets up this time frame phenomenally, and you finally have this major impacting storyline that... Obviously, not all of this is Charles Sewell. He's working with these other authors to set all this up. And so him, along with these other authors, have crafted this time frame. And then he goes in and kind of extrapolates um, for his own story as all the authors are going to go in and extrapolate for their own parts of the story. And I think that it has turned into an 
excellent book. It is one of my top books for the new canon. Um, I don't know where I put it in a number ranking order. Um, cause I don't generally think about that, but uh, it's definitely it's definitely up there, probably in the top five. Yeah. So. If you're thinking about getting this one, if you're on the fence, I would highly recommend it. Um, I think it's going to be fun. Even if you're not going to read the comics, I think the books alone are going to give you enough content. But the fact that we're going to have this told in the opposite or the other mediums is really exciting. Because like with the New Jedi Order, one of the things that I would critique it about when it first came out was that we had no idea what the things looked like. The characters, the Vongs, the ships, things of that nature. Once the series got to the end and wrapped up, Dark Horse finally went out and did Invasion, their comic story, and, and that, then we started to see the pictures. And that was years later. Like, they, oh yeah, they waited. Uh, it was it was a big gap in uh, time between the end of the uh, um, the end of the New Jedi Order and Invasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to say they were almost completed with Dark Nest when Invasion started. And that was the next series that came after New Jedi Order. But Dark Horse was playing it cool. They didn't want to have one of these collabs and, and not get some of the information. So they waited until the series was over and then came back in and filled the dots. Definitely a different way to go about it. What I appreciated about getting Invasion was getting to finally see everything come to life in the art. Which is what I love about what they're doing about this. Because they're using the comics. Because they're doing it more like uh, Shadows of the Empire. You know, we're getting to see what these things look like, the characters look like, the ships look like, right out the gate. There's not this waiting for fans to put it out there and, oh, is that right? No, yeah, no, this is what it looks like in this guidebook or that guidebook. We actually have pictures of these things, and I think that's pretty cool, too, because it also will help the authors, when it comes to describing these things, to be able to see it before you talk about it. Yeah, so that was one thing with the Vong, when they're talking about, like, you know, the Yamusks and the Coral Skippers and stuff, and... You know, each author's description was just so vastly different that the only thing they could be is like, well, they're all grown technology, so each one's going to be a little bit different. <laughs> um, so I would, I just wanted to um, emphasize that uh, it was a long time. The last New Jedi Order book that came out was Unifying Force in 2003. Do you know when Invasion started? Oh, God, 2004? 2009. Oh. Yeah, oh, geez, I was, wow. It's six years later between um, Invasion and the Unifying Force. And so that and, and that's what's like so exciting about this is that not only are we getting the multi um, multi pronged approach of the new Jedi Order where they gave us hardcover novels and not hardcover novels. Um, that <laughs> uh, that was their multi pronged approach. Um here we're getting adult novels, young adult novels, children's books, sticker books, um, the one line of comics. We're getting another line of comics. And then, again, The Acolyte is the TV show that we were told wasn't going to happen um, because right. they said that no, they, they weren't going to do a TV show with the, the High Republic. But then they immediately came out and said that they were going to do a TV show. So, like, we have – this major like focus on this time period that it's not going to be just this one and done thing. They are like, if you have a TV show coming in on the high Republic, you have to tie in with the other materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was, and it's going to be a great time. I mean, talk about a golden age of storytelling guys. (laughs) 
Indeed, indeed. So that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, as well as Spotify and iTunes. And as always, we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can always find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and Facebook pages at Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. No matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans so if you have any Star Wars or Legends questions or any other questions or you just want to comment about a past episode fire off you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com now lastly before we go we want to mention to you our sponsors Audible if you go to www.audibletrial slash starwarsreport you get a free trial run of Audible to see what they're all about our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe, the Expanded universe, the Harry Potter universe, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Audible members can exchange any book within a year, that's 12 whole months, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, has been Mark and Whistler. And Jim. Saying thanks for listening and... May the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the other stories will be as good as this one. Ooh, right. And that could be a downside, too. You set the bar really high and then no one else meets it. Although I think Claudia Gray will definitely meet the bar. <sighs> what are the odds I'll go can on all this intro exo stuff? Oh. <laughs> I need to. <laughs> it only took you 20 minutes to do the outro. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Podcasters around the Star Wars community would say this is the way. No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. That was last season. <laughs> that was last season. Oh, Try to man. keep up. That's true. That's true. Seasons move fast. All right. Well, I think I'm ready if you're ready. Um, I took a crap ton of notes because I was really enjoying the story. Uh, the problem is, though, is that uh, there's so many notes, I'm probably going to skip some really good points that I had, but that's okay. Um, I think that uh, between you and I, we've got a good discussion here with this book and where it's set. If, I if, think it, makes you feel, this... if it makes you feel any better, I don't take any notes and I try to go off of memory for everything. Hey, there you <laughs> go. There you go. I'm, too, I'm too afraid I'd sit there going, uh, I really like the book. That's all I can remember. I really like the book. I mean, that, especially with the new Disney era, there was a lot of stories where I'm like, I know I read this, but I don't know anything outside the summary. <laughs> yeah. 14D. 
Yeah, I'm scrolling through. I did a book review of it on AIPT, so I'm just scrolling through it. I'm like, I read it. I wrote this like last week, so it's fairly good in my mind. Still a little fresh. Yeah. I can, I can still taste the garlic. All right. I feel, I feel gaseous from Darien Mountain or from the Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah, let's get that out of the system. <laughs> <laughs> Sure it is. <laughs> but just as the magnificent Renaissance... Just as the magnificent res... Renaissance. The word is Renaissance. <laughs> sure it is. <laughs> uh-huh. But just as a magnificent Renaissance spreads throughout the Republic, so does a frightening new adversary. Now the Guardians of Peace and Justice must face a threat to themselves, the galaxy... And the force itself. That's deep. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report's website. Streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne. You know, you can pre-record this and then just tack it on the end. I was thinking about that the other day, honestly. I was like, man, why do I always do this to myself every time? (laughs) In fact, that may be my goal for 2021. Finish the year without having to do the ending. <laughs> uh huh. Be like, and we're done. And the recording only took forty minutes. <laughs> uh, you can find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages, or type in Star Wars Beyond the Films. You can find links to both our. Jeez, Louise, man, I'm tired. <laughs> Yeah, can, canning this is, is getting better every second. <laughs> <laughs> you can always find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's our... <laughs> it's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with us. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love interacting with us, too. Uh, I might end up just canning last week's and putting it on this. (laughs) 